Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, and uh, we've got a lot of events coming up, just not one this weekend. They, uh, they bailed me out. It's my wife's birthday on Saturday. I guess that's tomorrow. And uh, I haven't really gotten her anything, so I, I should remind myself about that. But regardless of that, they have bailed me out because uh, I get to spend time with my wife on her birthday, which is nice. Obviously, if, with anything falling on a Saturday that's of any significance, usually I have to miss it because I'm covering an event. But uh, not so this week. So thanks to UFC Brass for considering my wife when you're booking your annual schedule. Although they did have an event booked for the 23rd. It just happened to get pushed back a week. And uh, it appears that it's likely going to be at the UFC Apex. Now, the Nevada State Athletic Commission are meeting, I think it's on the 27th of May, to determine whether or not they can have the event on the 30th. So, yeah, it's a little bit tight. A little bit tight. I imagine they must have some sort of inside knowledge of what is actually going to transpire at said meeting. But uh, a little bit of a risk for the UFC. That being said, uh, I love the main event of that May 30th card. You've got Gilbert Burns against Tyron Woodley. And I think that uh, when you look at that card on paper, or that fight on paper, rather, that's uh, that's a solid fight. That is really a solid, solid main event. Now, I would have preferred to see the Woodley and Covington bout. I, I think, you know, they could stand to build that up a little bit more. But at the same time, I think that, you know, while you're trying to make that work and while you are trying to uh, get a, a good main event, you know, I think that that fight kind of sells itself. I don't think you need to have a ton of promotion for that fight. It's not like it's for a title or anything. I think you could put that fight on any time and, and people would be intrigued. But the the ascent of Gilbert Burns in the welterweight division has been uh, something to behold. Previously a lightweight, you know, if you, if you look at his career at lightweight, he came into the UFC and was known as this just devastating grappler. A guy that could be just about anybody on the ground if it got there. But uh, early on in his career... You know, it took him a little bit of time to to really get momentum. He's, he starts off on a three-fight win streak, and that third win was uh, over Cowboy Oliveira. Oliveira, on short notice, taking that fight. It burns a minus 750 favorite, and he gets the armbar finish at, with about 45 seconds left in the third round. Had he not gotten the finish there, there's a good chance Alex Oliveira wins that fight on short notice against Burns. Then he loses to Rashid Magomedov, a good, very good fighter, but uh, a loss nonetheless. Um... Went over uh, Lucas Saevsky. Lost to Michel Prezerich, which was a, a surprise. I'm pretty sure he was a, a sizable favorite in that fight. He was. He was about a 3-1 to favorite. So that that was a tough loss and uh, one that uh, kind of opened people's eyes about whether or not Gilbert Burns was going to turn around and be a solid UFC fighter. Beat, knocks out Jason Sago. Knocks out Dan Moretzo. If you look at his resume to date... I think Christos Giagos is back in the UFC, but outside of the wins over Giagos and uh, and Cowboy Oliveira, these are these are guys that are not in the UFC anymore. Loses to Dan Hooker early in the in the fight, halfway through the first round, gets knocked out. Then goes on to beat uh, Olivier Oban Merzier again, not in the UFC anymore. Short notice fight with Mike Davis ends up winning that fight, and uh, that was his last fight at lightweight. Eventually moves up to middleweight and since he's or to welterweight rather, and since he's moved up to welterweight, wins over Kunchenko, good prospect. Gunnar Nelson, obviously a very tough out, uh, ends up winning that one by decision. And Demian Maya, we, we saw that great win over Demian Maya. Um, so we're seeing uh, a really stark turnaround in the career of Gunnar Nelson since he moved. 
to the welterweight division, and that move was back in August of last year. So it, it hasn't even been a year, and he's he's reeled off three in a row. He's taking fights on short notice. He's uh, calling just about everybody out. But uh, that win over Maya was a statement win. You, you don't see people putting Damian Maya out like that. The last time we saw that was against Nate Marquardt really early on uh, in his uh, UFC tenure, uh, or at least in his tenure at the welterweight division. It's just nothing that happens to Demian Maya very often. And uh, you take a look at the uh, the welterweight rankings, and uh, obviously Tyron Woodley still considered the number one contender in that division. So a win over him for Gilbert Burns, who's ranked number six in the division now ahead of Demian Maya, I think that puts him basically right into title contention. I mean, a win over Tyron Woodley, who aside from the loss to Usman has not lost in many years, is uh, would be very impressive to say the least for Gilbert Burns. And I mean, the thing about Gilbert Burns that really stands out to me is he's just a different fighter at 170. And his striking has elevated so much in in uh, the last couple years. He's really become a a, a great striker and a, a well-rounded mixed martial artist. And it seems like he's in the gym all the time, working really hard. So, you know, the the knock on Woodley, according to uh, the people from the outside looking in is that he doesn't work that hard anymore. He's more focused on his hip-hop career. And I think that uh, saying that is very short-sighted because you um, are essentially... You're essentially saying that Woodley is just not working hard. He's, he's washed up and uh, and he's over the hill. Now, we've got a, uh, a nice feature going on next week on SportsCenter. It's uh, a fact or fiction piece on Tyron Woodley. I'm trying to debunk a lot of the myths surrounding Tyron Woodley that people have seemed to derive from one single fight, which was his fight against Kamaru Usman. And I'm going to let me unpack this just for a minute. So I'll go over this. I'm going to give you a bit of a sneak preview of that feature here on the, uh, the TSN MMA show podcast, because not all of you will be able to watch this feature since it's uh, going to be locked to Canada. So let's uh, let me just take a look at I'm going to pull up the, the, the script that I wrote for this thing, because I think it's a really important conversation to have regarding Tyron Woodley, and I will be getting to the John Jones situation a little bit later on in the show, so bear with me here. So here are the different myths that I uh, have debunked about Tyron Woodley. So let's start with this one. As champion, Tyron Woodley handpicked his opponents. So this is absolute and utter fiction. I mean, the the problem is, and the reason why this perception was created, was because whenever Tyron was interviewed, he'd call out GSP, he'd call out Nate Diaz, he'd call out Conor McGregor, he'd call out Khabib. He wanted to fight the big names. And as somebody who is a, a prize fighter at, at its core, wouldn't you want the, the biggest fights possible? Absolutely. If I'm Tyron Woodley, I'd want to fight GSP, Nate Diaz, or Conor McGregor, especially if I thought I had a fighting chance against them and could elevate my, my legacy. So... Did he try to handpick his opponent? Absolutely. Sure, you can say he tried to, but I think any good UFC fighter should have names on the tip of their tongue that they want to fight, have a, a bit of a fight bucket list, so to speak. So, sure, yeah, okay. You, you can say that he did try to handpick his opponent, but ultimately, he didn't fight against any big ticket attractions during his reign. He had those two bouts with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. I thought he definitively won the first one, but it ended up being a draw. And then the second one, I think... You, that that one was kind of a push. Like that one could have gone either way, but I I would have given Woodley that first fight no no problem. So basically, two fights with Stephen Thompson that really did nothing for his legacy, uh, because Thompson hasn't done much since then. Uh, you know, no disrespect to Stephen Thompson, he has that win over Vicente Luque, which is a nice win. But 
you know, when you look at, at Woodley's re- resume now, two wins over Stephen Thompson don't seem all that impressive, uh, at least as, as impressive as they were back then. But the wins themselves, I mean, that second win, it's, it's weird. It's like revisionist history. People remember the second fight, which was, was, was not very interesting. Uh, I mean, as somebody who covers the sport, I, I just thought that was a boring fight, and I think a lot of people thought that was a boring fight. It was a you know, very tactical fight. Um, where you could certainly see some interesting strategy involved, but in terms of the entertainment value, just sort of certainly wasn't very high. But let's not forget the first fight was the fight of the night on a stacked fight card with Conor McGregor versus Eddie Alvarez. Like that, that was a that was a, a massive fight. It was an exciting fight. So, but people forget about that because the rematch was wasn't exciting. Not to mention that the rematch was supposed to be the co-main event of Khabib versus Tony. That was the one where Khabib had complications during the weigh-in. So they were actually there. They were in the city. They were ready to go. But he had the weigh-in complications. That one's the closest one that we ever came to actually having, Tony versus Khabib, by the way. But uh, people don't remember that, that great fight with Thompson, the first one. So that kind of has, you know, hurt his legacy as a result. He fought an up-and-coming uh, Darren Till. Of course, Darren Till, you know, was undefeated at the time. Darren Till was actually favored in that fight. So that was a nice win for him. Second-round finish, submission finish. You know, subs isn't exactly how Woodley has been putting out opponents uh, during the course of his career. So a, a great win for him. Uh, and, of course, the win over Demian Maia who we uh, spoke about when we were discussing his upcoming opponent, Gilbert Burns. But the fight with Maya, he stuffed 21 takedowns in the fight. 0 for 21 for Demian Maya in that fight. And, and people blame Woodley for that fight being boring. Well, what was Woodley supposed to do? Just let him take him down? If somebody tries to take you down 20, 21 times and they are a, a renowned grappler, stuffing the takedown is all you can do in that situation. Sure, he could have tried to knock him out, but he was striking with him and he was, he was piecing him up on the feet. But over the course of five rounds, he stopped Demian Maya from mounting any sort of real offense against him, uh, at least in the grappling game. That's more than you can say for Kamaru Usman. Maya had Usman's back for a time. He had position on him, and then the referee stood them up. Something that Joe Rogan says still haunts his dreams. But we know that Woodley made easy work of Demian Maya. So Woodley's resume is kind of compromised because the last thing that people remember now is his fight with Usman, where he basically mounted no offense in that fight. He didn't have much success in that fight over the course of five rounds and basically lost from post to post. He was favored in that fight to win. Before the fight, he was asking Usman, you know, how, how are you going to beat me? What are you better at me? What, what are you better than at me? And uh, while Woodley was the more decorated collegiate wrestler, Usman had his way with him. Absolutely had his way with him. And Woodley said that was a bad night for him. You know, he said that he wasn't in it that night. And that's happened to him in the past. And that's really the reason why he lost the title. He just had a bad night. And, uh, I mean, if they fought again, if, he, Woodley, if Woodley and Usman fought again, what would the line be? I think Usman would be probably a minus 200, minus 300 favorite. Especially since Woodley's gotten older. But did he handpick his opponents? No, absolutely not. I don't, he did not handpick his opponents. He tried to. But uh, he did not handpick his opponents. That's utter fiction. Fact or fiction, Tyron Woodley was an inactive champion. Now, this is a big narrative that's pushed. And the reason why it's pushed is because during his time as champion, there was this perception that he was picking when he wanted to fight. He was picking dates he wanted to fight. He was turning down fights on certain dates. He said, no, I don't want to be on that event. He was trying to be on certain events. Sure, that, that did happen. But that does not mean he was an inactive champion. Not only was he an active champion, from the day that he won the belt until the day that he dropped it, there were more welterweight title fights than any other male division in the UFC. So this was categorically inaccurate. Not only was he an active champion, he was among the most active champions in the UFC at that time, and especially in the male divisions. So that is complete and utter hogwash that he was an inactive champion. That's probably the, the biggest myth surrounding Tyron Woodley. 
And then the other factor fiction is that, uh, you know, Tyron Woodley is a boring fighter. So let's look at the resume. He's got five of his 13 fights here, the uh, performance bonus, three of which were for first-round knockouts. So while being boring is very subjective, it's important to consider that when he was the champion, he, five of his matchups, three of, sorry, three of his five championship matchups were against specialists. He had two against Steven Wonderboy Thompson and one against Demian Maia. When you're fighting specialists, you have to fight a strategic fight if you want to win those fights. Was it boring? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the second Thompson fight was undoubtedly boring. The Maia fight was boring. But again, he stuffed 21 of 21 takedowns in that fight. That's not his fault. If your opponent is just repeatedly trying to take you down, sure, you can go for the finish and sell out for the finish. But when you sell out for a finish against a guy as dangerous as Demi Maia, he grabs a hold of you, even if you, you level him with a knee when he's coming in on a, on a takedown. He gets a hold of you, you could be done. That could be, you're, not, you're no longer the champion. You have to protect that gold belt because much of your earning power is based on having a championship belt. And that's why a lot of fighters take more of a conservative approach. And you can definitely accuse Woodley of doing that when he was champion. But if you look at the big picture, his fights overall have been more exciting than they've been boring. So that, that, that claim is mostly fiction. I can't say it's utter fiction, but it's mostly fiction. And then fact of fiction, Tyron Woodley isn't the finisher. So uh, this one is uh, where the truth kind of lies somewhere in between. He only earned one finish when he was the champion, when he, in his five fights since he had captured the title. And that's a really low finishing rate, even at the upper echelons of a division and the championship level. That's a pretty low finishing rate. However, prior to that, Woodley had a finishing rate of 83% in his first UFC, in the five of his six UFC fights where he scored a win inside the distance, 83%. That, that's a really high finishing rate for the welterweight division. So recency bias will tell us Woodley's not much of a finisher. But early on in his UFC tenure, when he still fought the upper, upper echelon of the division, almost all of his wins ended with a finish. So, so sure, I mean, in recent years, you can say that uh, he's not a finisher. But when you look at the total body of work, that's just not true. All right, fact or fiction, Tyron Woodley is washed up. Now, this is the question that Woodley kind of has to answer for himself, but there's no definitive evidence to suggest that he's washed up. There was one fight. If you're using one fight as your sample size, that is a flawed study. You can ask anybody in the field of research, whether it's a university professor, um, any sort of researcher, any sort of, you know, anybody who does studies, long-term studies. A sample size of one is not a valid sample size. You cannot make a definitive statement or a claim based on one sample. You just can't. So the call Tyron Woodley washed up because he lost badly in one fight to a guy in Kamaru Usman. We now know, know who, how good he is. I mean, this is a guy who has one loss outside of the UFC, but is undefeated in his UFC tenure. Won the ultimate fighter. Now the champion. Just beat Colby Covington, who's probably, you know, a lot of people would say is the second best guy in that division. And he finished him, no less. But... Yeah, calling Tyron Woodley washed up because he lost to Kamaru Usman, that's a, that's a hogwash statement based on what we know right now. Now, if Gilbert Burns blows him out, then you can make the case that maybe his best years are behind him. I mean, he's 38 years old. That's uh, certainly old for fighting age. I mean, I'm 38 years old, and I, you know, I, I, get, I feel pain when I'm walking down the stairs. So for him to be fighting at 38 years old, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty incredible to be at such a high level at that age. But when you, when you look at the, uh, the big picture, you can't call him washed up yet. After next Saturday, sure, you can make that case. So those are just some of the, uh, the fact and fiction surrounding Tyron Woodley. Now let's move on to John Jones. A big story came out 
uh, via MMA Junkies, John Morgan. An interesting situation for, for John, because John is, uh, along with, from what I understand, some other staff at the MMA Junkie, on a, a rolling furlough, which means that uh, one week you don't work and you don't get paid. You don't work for the fur. So during his week of furlough, John Jones came to him and said, Hey, uh, you know, I, I told you I'd inter- that you could interview me. Apparently after the Dominic Reyes fight, he said, John, I'm going to let you interview me. And uh, no better time to interview John Jones than right now with this whole situation regarding Francis Ngannou. And uh, really for John, no better time to do an interview and get your, your narrative out there than this time. With a, a John Morgan, a, you know, somebody as highly esteemed as John Morgan in the MMA space. And the fact that they're furloughing John Morgan, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what to say about that. A guy, guy might be, you know, somebody sent me a message saying, uh, is John Morgan a millionaire because he's old MMA junkie? If John Morgan is a millionaire, this guy works like he has nowhere to live. That's how, hard, that's how good John Morgan's work ethic is. If you go to any media event, the first person in line is John Morgan every single time. Like if you're going to morning weigh-ins, John Morgan is the first guy in line. If you're going to a press conference, John Morgan is the first guy in line. You don't even need to be the first guy in line at a press conference. You show up and you sit somewhere and you ask questions. But that's what John Morgan is known for. John Morgan is a workhorse, plain and simple. He does his roadshow podcast. He's uh, you know, always asking the first question at the scrum because of – and that's because you know, the UFC doesn't say, hey, John, you know, you're going to go first all the time. Members of the media have an understanding that John Morgan's going to go first and – Nobody challenges it because everybody respects John Morgan that much. And if somebody has challenged it, I, I haven't heard of that. But the reason John Morgan asked the first question is because he has the, the complete and utmost respect of those in this craft. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, there's not much more I can say about John Morgan other than the fact that he works as hard as anybody I've ever seen in this industry. So uh, I digress. And uh, John Morgan did this. So he does this interview it's not really for MMA Junkie, it's for his, uh, his Patreon account. And I mean, he put it out for free, but I, I would recommend uh, that if you're a fan of the work of John Morgan, that you support him on Patreon. Because John Morgan is uh, one of the pioneers of uh, journalism in this space. And uh, is still working as hard, I'm sure, as he did on day one. Because that's just from what I see, that's how John Morgan is. So he interviews John Jones, and I mean, basically the interview says, and John Jones has kind of been open with this, that the UFC will not pay him an extra dollar to fight Francis Ngannou to move up to heavyweight. Now, my first reaction to this was, that is insanity. If you look at the UFC, what is one fight outside of a Conor McGregor fight that you would throw money at? If you're either a fan or a promoter, and I think it's Jones versus Ngannou. There are so many interesting questions that come from that fight. It's, that would be Jones' heavyweight debut in the UFC. It would be against the scariest guy in the UFC in Francis Ngannou. Uh, I don't know if they put an interim title on that, but if they did, it would certainly add a whole bunch of intrigue because if Jones wins that fight, now you're fighting DC or Stipe next if DC chooses to, to, to take that fight. And if there's anything that could keep DC around after a win over Stipe, if he were to recapture the belt, uh, John Jones' fight might be that fight. But you have to think of all the incredible possibilities of this fight because John is not used to fighting big guys like that, guys that have uh, a long reach, guys that have that kind of power. It would be a risky fight for John. And I've asked John in the past. I don't know if it was me who asked it, but I heard him say it in a scrum. He is hesitant to move up to the heavyweight division because of the potential brain damage, because of the potential risk, that long-term risk 
ramifications of moving to heavyweight. And he says he wouldn't do it unless he was compensated accordingly. So that's, uh, that's why John is an interesting case because he will not move up unless the UFC makes it worth his while. And I think they should make it worth his while, especially if Francis Ngannou is the opponent. And Francis Ngannou, there's nothing else for Francis Ngannou to do right now aside from fight John Jones or from fighting the champion of the heavyweight division. There's just no other avenue we're going to get this guy in the cage where it makes any sense. Try to come up with one. There's nobody he'd fight that he hasn't already beaten, really, that, ha- that has moved up in the heavyweight division. Here, let me pull up the rankings in front of me. Let's, let's go one by one. So obviously the Stipe rematch would be great. The Cormier fight would be great if Cormier is not going to be matched up with Stipe, but I don't know if Cormier would even want to do that fight. I don't know if he would want to retire, like fighting Francis, then if he beats him, retire. I mean, that would be great for his legacy, but I think he'd probably rather retire as champion. That probably means more to him. Uh, Curtis Blades, again, who's beaten twice. The Derek Lewis rematch, I mean, you could do that, I guess, because the first one was just such a stinker, but why would you put yourself in that position where you, you have you do a rematch of a fight that is wholesale considered one of the most boring fights of all time? That I'm sure both of those guys would say is one of the most boring fights of all time. He's beaten uh, Junior Dos Santos. He's beaten Rosenstrike. Uh, Volkov is currently matched up with Blades, but I, I don't know if a Volkov match would make a ton of sense for Francis Ngannou with Volkov ranked 7th, given that Francis has beaten basically every other contender. Uh, Overeem he's beaten. Walt Harris is coming off a loss to Overeem. I don't see the upside for Francis to take that fight. Alexei Olenek, I don't think that a, a commission would sanction that fight. Uh, and uh, you could say the same about basically anybody uh, ranked below Alexei Olenek. So there's just not a whole lot of interesting possibilities for Stipe. So uh, just looking at that, that's that's my uh, my opinion on that at the moment. I, I just or not for Stipe, rather for Francis. So. The Francis John Jones fight would make a lot of sense. It would have a ton of intrigue. But then, again, I, that was my, my knee-jerk reaction was, why would they not pay John Jones more money to make this fight? It makes no sense. But then, you got to think of all of the things that surround that particular fight at this moment. Now, who knows when we're going to have live crowds again. And I don't know how much of a draw at the box office this particular fight would be. I know that I think a lot of people would watch this fight. I think it would be great. But I think that right now, Jones has such terrible bargaining power for this particular fight. And uh, let's just look at the facts here. Jones has had his outside-the-cage issues. He just got arrested. He pled guilty. um, Or pled no contest, I believe it was. I think it was guilty, actually. Um, Entered a plea and uh, took a plea bargain. So right now, from the public perception, for John, that's uh, certainly not ideal. And from the UFC, you know, they've had his back. They haven't suspended him for it. But even outside of that, let's, let's take a look at his recent fights. He's currently on a win streak of three straight decisions, dating back from the beginning of 2019. So it's been a year and a half since we've seen John Jones get a finish in a win. And the last time he got a finish in a win prior to that was in 2013 against Chael Sonnen. So, I mean, you can say that he finished Cormier, but that fight's been overturned. So, in a win, and, uh, you know, I, I, I say in a win because that 
Cormier fight again is now a no contest. He's technically 1-0-1 against Cormier. Or 1-0-0 with one no contest. I know people are anal about that, but whatever. So the amount of decisions he's had since 2013. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Seven decisions. Since that Chael Sonnen fight. I mean, just look at the... Look at that. I mean, think about that. That's basically since the Alexander Gustafson fight. The first one. Not the second. Not the most recent one. The first one. The only finish he's gotten since that first Alexander Gustafson fight is against Gustafson five years later. So right now, John, who was... You know, always known for being this exciting fighter, finished like the the murderer's row of of the light. Look at the guys that he finished early on in his light heavyweight career. You know, finishing Bader, Shogun Hua, Rampage Jackson, Lyoto Machida, Rashad Evans was that was a decision, and Vitor Belfort. All those guys in a row. Like that's one of the craziest win streaks in terms of names. I, I spoke about Cejudo's win streak with uh, Demetrius Dillashaw and Dominic Cruz and Marais and Dominic Cruz. Like, in terms of light heavyweight, where those guys were at at that time, Ryan Bader, big up-and-comer at that time. I mean, I think Bader has established himself more since then, but I digress. Shogun Hua was a killer. He was the champion at the time. Rampage Jackson, former champion. Lyoto Machida, former champion. Rashad Evans, former champion. So he beat four former champions in a row. I mean, you, even Cejudo didn't do that because Marais isn't the former UFC champion. So... John Jones, his ascent was spectacular. and But since then, the decisions will lower your value as a fighter, unfortunately, in terms of entertainment value. That's just the way it is. I thought the Reyes fight was very entertaining, and I think a lot of people thought Reyes won that fight. Myself included. So he's coming off of the first real, like, the first really debatable John Jones win of his career. There's no debate to any other John Jones win. I mean, that split over Thiago Santos, I think. If you go back and watch that fight, that, I mean, giving Santos that scorecard, I, I don't know if you could, if you can do that, personally. I, I, just, I thought John won that fight, and I thought he did, did so pretty clearly. But the Reyes fight was, like, it's the, the, the closest he's come to being defeated. And now Jones is saying, well, let's not do that rematch. And, and optically, that doesn't look great. He says, my business is done in the light heavyweight division, but is it? I mean, is your business done? You, you really want to leave the division with that question mark hanging over your head about the Dominic Reyes fight? So let's keep that in mind. And now you want to negotiate a contract during a pandemic where there's no live crowd. You're trying to get more money after you just had a DUI situation that looked... I mean, when you were urging people to stay at home... You're out and you're being accused of shooting guns and of a, and of a DUI. And, and now is the time you want to go to the UFC brass and say, nah, I'm, I, I want to really improve my legacy right now. And you guys are not allowing me to improve my legacy. I mean, I don't know. I don't know about that. Like, that's... You know, I just don't know about the timing on that. Like, I, I think that had he, if he went back and beat Reyes for a second time, now your bargaining position is as high as it'll ever be. 
But right now, his bargaining power is low. If you're a UFC brass and you're looking at the big picture, you're looking at the legal troubles, you're looking at the questionable win over Reyes, now you're now this guy wants to move to heavyweight after for years it would have made so much more sense. Like you you wanted to fight Tiago Santos and Anthony Smith rather than move up to heavyweight after you just finished Alexander Gustafson in the second round. Like that would have been the time. From a bar, from a bargaining position, that would have been the time. You're hot, you just got to finish over Gustafson, you answered any questions that you might have had against about that first fight. Now is the time to strike while the iron is hot. Right now the iron is cold. It's been unplugged for some time. And this isn't a knock on Jones at all. I, I, I've, I said on, nas- on Canadian national television, on the night that George St. Pierre got inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame, that I thought John Jones was the greatest fighter in UFC history. And I got a lot of flack for that. And I, but I, I believe that to be true. But from a business standpoint, I just don't think that this is the best time to be trying to get more money out of the UFC. When you look at, at all the facts right now. When you look at the fact that we're in a global pandemic... And right now, the UFC are operating, and people, people in the world, like, look at the unemployment rate. People are, are struggling to get paid. Even John Morgan, who we spoke about earlier, one of the hardest working guys in the industry, is on furlough this week. And you think now is a good time to negotiate with the UFC about a move up to heavyweight to make more money to face Francis Ngannou. He is worth more money. I'm like, don't even second guess that for a second. I don't think he's worth more money to fight Francis Ngannou, and that. And if I was the promoter, I would throw, throw money at both those guys to make that fight happen. Because that fight is a, is a home run. It's an absolute and utter home run. But when you come out to John Morgan and you're doing your interview and you're talking about, oh, yeah, I can't believe the UFC is not letting me achieve my potential. I'm just going to sit on the sidelines. You know, when they ask me to fight, I, you know, I, I'm just, I'm not gonna, I don't have the motivation to fight a light heavyweight anymore. These are all me, me, me problems. The UFC are thinking about the UFC. They're thinking about if we're going to pay you more money, how are you going to, what's in it for us? And they're going to get a big fight out of it, no doubt. But when you have a situation where you're not making gate, and gate accounts for, from what I understand, 10% of their business, your, your bargaining power is just low. It just is. So, but if, you know, if you want to say to the UFC, hey, I'll take the same amount of money, but I want to cut. I want to cut a pay-per-views. Right now, the pay-per-view business is hot. Look at it. Ferguson and Gaethje just did 700000 People are craving sports still. I, team sports are not around the corner. I'm sorry. I don't think team sports... You're going to have to be really, really careful if you want to bring back team sports. Because, and I've outlined this on the show many times previously. If you're going to bring back team sports, if there's a single incident of the coronavirus, you got to shut down. Pretty much. Like, you might have an entire team that can't play for two weeks because you have to quarantine everybody. The UFC are kind of safeguarded from all of that, to an extent. But it's to a pretty large extent. So right now, if I'm, if I'm negotiating for John Jones, and that's not my job, that's, that's Malky and Abe Kawa's job. You know, I'd say, listen, if you're not going to pay me more off the top, if you're not going to give me a flat rate, high flat rate for this fight, give me a cut of pay-per-views, because they could sell this fight easily. Like, this fight... Again, I think this fight's a home run. There's no fight I would rather see in the UFC right now than that fight, than Jones versus Francis Ngannou. And I want John Jones to make more money. I want Francis Ngannou to make more money. I want all the fighters to make more money. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to insinuate that these guys shouldn't get paid what they're worth. I don't think they do get paid what they're worth. I think they should be getting paid more. 
but ultimately, you do need to look at this from a business perspective. And I just think this is the wrong time. I think when the well starts running dry, if the well starts running dry, that's when you ask for it. If you have a, a main event, let's say you got Masvidal versus Usman booked and, and that fight falls off, someone gets injured. That's when you ask. That's when you, you, you lobby for that fight. You say, hey, I'll, I'll fight Francis on short notice. I won't need to cut any weight. Francis won't need to cut much weight. You have to do it when you have the bargaining power to do it. And I just don't think they have the bargaining power to do it right now. I think they have something planned for this first Fight Island card, which I think looks like it's going to be on July 11th. I mean, Paige Van Zandt versus Rebus just got booked for July 11th. Paige said, I'm excited to fight on Fight Island, something along those lines on, on Instagram. It was supposed to be when they had International Fight Week. So why not have it on International Waters? That would be a great way to kick off Fight Island. As you do, you have the, your, your biggest card of the year there. They must have something in mind for that because I, like, I, I don't know if you're, if I'm the UFC, Jones versus Gennu is like you could you could headline just about any pay per view with that, regardless of championship fights that are on that card. I, like name a bigger fight. Usman versus Masvidal isn't a bigger fight than that. I'm sorry, it just isn't. Short of a Conor McGregor fight, I don't know what you would headline over a John Jones Francis Ngannou heavyweight fight. You don't even need to attach a belt to that bad boy. This fight sells itself. But again, I'm just looking at it from the standpoint of the promotion. And right now, you just don't have the bargaining power to do that. So, it is what it is. And one last thing I want to get to is uh, Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith was uh, on his show on Sirius XM Radio. I think it's MMA Tonight, it's called, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And was talking about his, co- his coaches not stopping his fight against Glover Teixeira and the referee not stopping his fight against uh, Glover Teixeira until the fifth round. And he basically said that he has instructed his corner that under no circumstances are they to stop one of his fights or he will not work with them again. Now, a lot of people have been critical of Mark Montoya and uh, the Factory X team for not stopping that fight when they could have. And Anthony was taking a a real beating in that fight. Jason Herzog wasn't stopping the fight. So the only other person that could stop that fight is his corner. People, I guess, that could stop that fight. But if I'm his corner and I'm instructed by him to not throw in the towel under any circumstance or he will not work with me again, if I want to continue working with this man, who is one of the, the, I think, might not, if not the highest ranked fighter at Factory X, or at least up there with the top fighters to come out of Factory X right now, I don't stop that fight. I'm sorry. I just, uh, if that's my instruction and I'm, I'm the coach, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I, I, I would hate to be in that position if I'm Mark Montoya. Honestly, I would. Because there's just no win for anybody in that situation. If you throw in the towel, you're, you know, the, the, the fighter that you're coaching is furious with you and might not ever work with you again, probably won't ever work with you again if, that, if, you, if you give strict instructions. You have to stand there and watch this take place, which is, I'm sure, gut-wrenching for someone who he, to watch someone who he cares about take this kind of a beating at the hands of Glover Teixeira, who's one of the toughest guys in the light heavyweight division. And, you know, watching the referee not do anything must give you a really helpless feeling as well. 
and then you've got to look around at your corner, they're probably looking at you to do something. Like if you're Mark Montoya, you're looking at the guys in the corner and they're like, ah, you know, it might be time. But you know in the back of your head, if I do this, you know, this is going to be detrimental to my relationship with my fighter. But if I don't do this, it's going to be detrimental to my fighter's health. So, I just, if I'm Mark Montoya, I don't throw in the towel. I mean, I can't blame Mark Montoya for not throwing in the towel. I just can't. And Anthony Smith doesn't blame him for not throwing in the towel. And if he doesn't, who am I to blame him? Who are we to blame him for not throwing in the towel at that time? I, what would you do? If I'm in that situation, I'm not throwing in the towel. I just, I have to be honest. I wouldn't do it. And it's not that I don't care for my fighter, and it's not that I don't think that it should be stopped. I'm sure that Mark Montoya probably thought it should have been stopped in the third round in the back of his head. But his job is between rounds to get in there and talk to his fighter and try to get the best output from his fighter in that situation. We've seen fights where they should have been stopped earlier, and that fighter comes back and wins. Like, look at Darren Elkins. Just fought Nate Landwehr last weekend. If you look at him... And you look at, you know, what happened with him in that Mirzat Bektik fight. Like, he was getting beaten pillar to post. And now, suddenly, you know, you're expecting that this guy's going to be able to somehow come back and, and win that fight. I mean, Darren Elkins, I'm sure they didn't expect to come back and win that fight. He came back and won that fight. It was like a 20-to-1 underdog going into that third round thing along those lines. Or 30-to-1. Something absurd like that. And he probably should have been. <laughs> I mean, I can't call it absurd. Probably, probably should have been. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what happened there. I'm trying to remember what happened this past weekend because I, uh, I had uh, food poisoning that night. And I went and did a sports center hit, and it was a really good hit. But I, I don't, I barely remember it, to be honest. Barely remember it. But uh, what I do remember is that there were a lot of bad robberies on that card. Namely, I thought Claudia Gedalia versus Angela Hill. I thought that that fight was a clear Angela Hill win. I thought she clearly won rounds two and three. I was very surprised by that. Even the Ige fight, I think you could make a case that Ige won that fight. Honestly, I do. I don't think that that was a robbery. I think that could have gone either way. Yudong versus Vera, you could make a... I mean, you can make a very small case for Song Yudong and to, for winning that fight. You can give him the first and the second. And the first is very... That was a close round, honestly. It was a close round. I mean, I, I gave it to Vera. I thought Vera won 29-28. I gave Vera 1-3. and three. But I, I just... I can't call that one a robbery. I can't. The Gedalia Hill fight I thought was a robbery. I thought that Hill undoubtedly won rounds 2-3. and three. I thought that one, the wrong person won that fight. But let's uh, let's start from uh, let's let's start from the main event. Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris. That was a tough fight to watch because Walt was so close, so close to getting that win. Overeem is just so tough. But this is the thing I want to say about that particular fight. You know, a lot of people are saying, "Oh man, Walt Harris." You know, he's coming in with uh, with so much emotion stemming from the loss of his daughter, and that's absolutely true. He's still not. He's said to me, "I'm still not over the loss. I'm not going to be over it." And uh, I should, you know, at this point in time, we're still grieving. So you've got somebody who's grieving trying to win a fight against Alistair Overeem. 
but let's just, let's like let's take that out of it. Let's take the pressure of having to fight for your daughter who has been murdered out of it. Let's take the emotion that goes into that out of the equation. Let's let's look at it from a, a, an X is a no standpoint. Alistair Overeem versus Walt Harris. I I think that Overeem has the advantage in that fight. I you know I I hate to say it. I I don't know if those outside factors for Walt Harris could have made him better that night. They might have made him better that night, honestly. You just don't know. Because Walt Harris was winning that fight. He was on the the verge of winning that fight. And then he got tired and he lost. And I don't know if that exhaustion came from the emotional weight that, that, you know, the pressure of trying to get the win under that circumstance. Maybe it did. But I just think that was a hard fight for him. (laughs) <laughs> like it's at the end of the day, he was fighting Alistair Overeem, and if you look at Alistair Overeem's resume of late, there was that loss to Yair Rosenstrike where he had won all four rounds before that on every judge's scorecard, and he lost with four seconds left in that fight. So he basically just beat Yair Rosenstrike, somebody who people thought was the you know the real up and comer in that division, and two first round wins prior to that against Alexei Olenek and Sergey Pavlovich. So. You could argue that he should have been on a three-fight win streak, including a, a massive win over Yair Rosenstrike going into that Walt Harris fight. That's how good Overeem still is. Like, Overeem is still uh, highest of high-level guys in the heavyweight division. Like, if you were to put the division into, into tiers right now, if you were to break it down into tiers, you got the top tiers. The top tier, which is Stipe, Cormier, and Francis Ngannou. You've got the second tier, which I think is basically just Curtis Blades. And Overeem is in that third tier with JDS, with Rosenstrike, with Volkov, and with Overeem. And I think that everybody below that, including Walt Harris, Walt Harris, Olenek, Abdurakhimov, Pavlovich, Blagoy Ivanov, Verdum, Augusto Sakai, they're all a tier below that, that third tier. But I think that once you get to that third tier in the heavyweight division, that's where you see where you stand. Like Greg Hardy, you got to that third tier when he fought Volkov and he didn't belong. And we were just going to find out if Walt Harris belonged in that third tier. But I, I thought Walt Harris being favored in that fight was was a big flaw. I don't think he should have been favored in that fight. And I think him being favored in that fight, a lot of a lot of that was because everybody wanted this guy to win. And I, I too wanted Walt Harris to win. I, I'm really not trying to take anything away from Walt Harris. What I'm trying to say is that in that situation where he's fighting for his daughter and and... and doing it for his family, and there is emotional weight there, that certainly does play into it. But it, it, even if you peel back that layer of the onion, fighting Alistair Overeem is not an easy task in general. So with that in mind, you have to give the highest of high kudos and grades to Walt Harris for how he performed in that fight. Walt Harris almost won that fight. And that is a really difficult opponent to beat at the best of times. So almost beating him while you're fighting under those same circumstances, like I said, it could have made him better. Like, it could have given him more more strength than he normally would have in a fight, fighting with, with that for his family. We'll, I, like, until he talks about it, we won't know. Because there's there's a good chance that Overeem is just the better fighter. Like, even even without all of those outside factors. So kudos to Walt Harris for how he performed that fight. Because that is not an easy task. That is a tall order. 
That is a tall, tall order to try to beat Alistair Overeem. And uh, it's not an easy task. And uh, Walt Harris almost did it. And he almost did it with the the weight of the world on his shoulders. So kudos to Walt Harris and kudos to Alistair Overeem for, for overcoming that advers- adversity early on. Nearly coming back to win that round. I gave that first round to Harris because I thought that Harris did more damage in that round. Even though Overeem had that dominant position at the end. But uh, in the second round, Harris ran out of gas, and I don't know if that was from emotional exhaustion or physical exhaustion, because Walt, Walt Harris isn't... Like, if you look at Walt Harris's resume, you look at his... at every single one of his fights, like, how many have gone the distance? You had the one the one fight with Arlovsky that went the distance that was uh, overturned due to a tainted supplement, but there was a split decision win that went the distance. A decision lost to Shamil Abdurakhimov back in 2016... And the decision lost to Gerald Rochalt in twenty thirteen. And then uh a fight back in twenty eleven that went the distance. Like most of his fights, so if you look at that, he's got he's got thirteen wins and four of those sorry, he's got twenty two fights, four of those have gone to a decision. So most of the most of the time you're not seeing Walt Harris go to a decision. So you, I just don't know if maybe Walt Harris in a main event situation where you're fighting a guy with the work rate of an Alistair Overeem, if you're going to just run out of the gas in general, but I'm sure that the emotional weight of that probably did help him slow down faster. Did did cause him to slow down faster. So that was uh, that was the main event. Again, the the co-main, Gedalia versus Hill. I thought that Hill should have won a decision there. Then you've got Ige versus Barboza. I I'm okay with Ige winning that fight, honestly, by decision. I I I had it for Barboza, but by the slimmest of slim margins. I thought that the second round was a toss-up. I think it was the second round that I thought was a toss-up. I can't remember which round. I'm pretty sure I, I gave Ige a clear first, Barboza a clear third, and... Oh, sorry, Edson a clear first, Ige a clear third, and the second round was uh, was kind of a, a coin flip, if I recall correctly. Again, I, I had food poisoning that night, and I'm doing my best to remember how the fights played out. I did watch all of them, but it's, uh, it's kind of a weird memory. Jotko versus Anders, this was a pretty easy one to score. Yudong versus Vera. Again, I, I thought this was a tougher fight to score than Hill versus Gedalia. I thought that the first round, you could make a case that Yudong had some success in that round that you could have given it to him. That was a close round. I thought the other two rounds were very clear. Brown versus Baeza. Baeza overcoming early adversity against Matt Brown and finishing him early in the second round. Tough to watch for Matt Brown. I think Matt Brown still has some fight left in him. Uh, of course, the night turned around for Mark Coleman when he found out that his his brother, as he calls him, Kevin Randleman, getting into the Hall of Fame. So a great moment seeing Mark Coleman break down backstage, hearing that news. Kevin Holland beating Anthony Hernandez in just 40 seconds. That was the best call- Kevin Holland we've ever seen. He says he wants to move down to welterweight, which I think is a great idea. I think he'll be a huge welterweight. And I think he'll have a lot of advantages in that division. And he weighed in at 182 for that middleweight fight, so... I think that cutting to 170, if he, can, if he can figure out that cut, would be a great move for him. He's very small for that division. Uh, the middleweight division, that is. Look at this fight against Thiago Santos. He was so small in that fight. Even in this fight against Fluffy Hernandez, he was very, very small. Giga Chikadze beats very, very short-notice opponent, Erwin Rivera. Uh, via unanimous decision. Those Giga kicks, on point, on point. People got upset with me because I said that Nate Landwehr should have had a 10-8 round in the second and won 
Personally, I think my 29-27 card is a better scorecard than 30-27 because I thought Elkins uh, fairly clearly won that first round. But that second round, with those elbows landing on Elkins, those are, those are fight-altering blows. And those are the kind of strikes that you give. And it's not just the blood. I know that people are like, oh, Elkins bleeds like that in every fight. And that is true. But I thought that those elbows could have put out a lot of other people at featherweight, and there were two of them in that round. So I, I scored that a 10-8. Gilbert Burns agreed with me, and it seemed like everybody else in the entire world did not. Uh, Courtney Casey wasn't doing great early on against Mauro Romero, Romero Barella, but ended up cinching in a, a really tight arm bar and earning her, uh, earning a victory in her flyweight debut. And I think that this is a good weight class for her. She, she looked like she struggled to make weight for flyweight for her flyweight debut. She weighed in with the towel. Didn't look great on the scale. But I think she should stay at 125. I think that while her length was a, a big strength for her at uh, straw weight, I think that being able to not have to, to cut that a ton of weight for her, she's basically, I think she's a natural flyweight. I think that's the division she should be fighting in, and uh, I thought she looked good in that fight. And uh, the first fight of the night, Rodrigo Nascimento against Dante Mays. I think that Nascimento's got a really strong future in this sport. I think that he's a nice up-and-comer at heavyweight, training at, uh, at Jack, with Jackson Winklejohn. So uh, kudos to him on a, on a nice debut after uh, earning a contract on the Dana White Contender Series. So that's it for uh, this particular card. And uh, the next card, as we discussed, uh, will be headlined by Tyron Woodley and Gilbert Burns. Some other fights added this week to that card, and there are some really good ones. Um, Caitlin Chukagian against the other Shevchenko. Coming off a loss to Valentina Shevchenko, she will now fight Antonina Shevchenko. And it's funny, after I spoke to um, Valentina Shevchenko backstage, following her win over Chukagi, and I spoke to Roger Allen, her uh, manager. And Roger was saying to me, the one thing people didn't talk about, and he was 100% correct on this, was that training day in and day out with Antonina is basically like training with with Caitlin Chukagian. Like, you're talking about long flyweights that have, you know, really good stand-up, really good, sharp, precise stand-up. And basically, that's that's her day-to-day training partner, her sister, Antonina, and that gave her a big advantage against Chukagian. And I think that Antonina is, actually has a favorable matchup against Chukagian. I wouldn't be surprised if she's favored in this fight. Um, also added recently, Brock Weaver versus Roosevelt Roberts. That's a fun one at 155. Casey Kenny versus uh, Luis Smolka at 135. That's a fun one. That's, that's gonna, there's going to be a lot of action in that fight. Tim Elliott against the uh, newcomer, Brandon Royval, the uh, flyweight champion of LFA. He's a really solid fighter. He's coming off uh, two straight armbar wins in the first round, Ronda Rousey style, taking on Tim Elliott. Billy Quarantillo has uh, a fight rebooked. He was originally supposed to face... Let me just find out. I have to pull this up in front of me. He was supposed to face Gavin Tucker last month. And I guess uh, due to the travel restrictions, Tucker wasn't able to travel, if I'm not mistaken. But he's fight, fighting Spark, Spike Carlisle. Spike Carlisle's a madman. I like that. I like this guy. Won his first fight against Alon Cruz. First round. That guy just throws bombs. That's going to be a really fun fight. That's an underrated fight. And uh, Chris Gutierrez versus Vince Morales also added to this particular card. And Mackenzie Dern versus Hannah Cyphers also on the card. And Blagoy Ivanov versus Augusto Sakai. And uh, Jamal Hill against uh, Clinton Abreu. I think all of those fights were previously announced. But uh, this card is uh, shaping up to be a fun card. I like this as a fight night card, but that main event 
is a spectacular main event. Tyron Woodley versus Gilbert Burns. Really excited about that. And I, I had pointed out, and I was actually incorrect on this, but I pointed out on Twitter that Woodley hadn't fought on non-premium cable like Showtime or pay-per-view in his entire career. But somebody had pointed out to me that he actually had fought on the prelims of a pay-per-view. So that was televised on Fox Sports 1. So I apologize for making that, that error. But uh, this will be the rare televised Tyron Woodley fight as long as this does air on ESPN. I think it's going to air probably both on ESPN and ESPN+. Plus. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think ESPN is just going to, they're going to carry as much live sports as they can. They have that option if, I, if I'm not mistaken. So there you have it. This has been the TSN MMA Show. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back next week. And if you're tuning into the podcast, here's an interview that I did with Alex Perez, who's uh, facing Juicy A Formesia at UFC 250. Thanks for tuning in. Be back next week. I'm now joined by Alex Perez. He's facing Juicy A Formigia at UFC 250. That's June the 6th, uh, likely at the UFC Apex. Is that what you've been hearing? Uh, yeah, man. As of right now, that's, uh, that's the location. Well, excellent. I think that it's going to be uh, an incredible event. I know that uh, us in Canada are excited about Felicia Spencer getting a, a, title, a title shot, so that's, uh, that's good news. But Juicy A Formigia, he's a tricky, tricky guy. Uh, very uh, specialized opponent. I'm guessing that your strategy will be to keep this one on the feet. I know that you're probably very confident with your jiu-jitsu, but Juicy has got a pretty, uh, pretty different level from a lot of others in the division. Um, I'm just going to go wherever the fight goes, man. Uh, if it goes to the ground, it goes to the ground. I'm not, I'm just going in there to win, you know, honestly. If it goes to the ground, I'm comfortable with my abilities and uh, with all the coaching I've had and my training partners pushing me. So I'm not really too worried if it goes to the ground. Do you feel like this would be a real coming of age for you if you're able to get the win here? This is uh, one of the top guys in the division. I know you've been trying to work your way back up uh, after the loss to Benavidez. Uh, is, that, is that what the goal is? You beat Formigia and then you're right there in the title mix? Uh, I'm just worried about this fight. The title mix doesn't really concern me. My name's not in it yet. So um, after this fight, if it is, cool. If it's not, not a big deal. I just win, I just win some more fights and get my name in there. Uh, not really looking past uh, Flamingo or what's next because – I got to win this fight first. When you look at the flyweight division, we're starting to see a lot of people getting signed finally. Um, I know that uh, there's uh, a new, I think it's uh, Brandon Royval. He got signed. Uh, some guys from overseas are getting signed. Is that is that a good sign for you that the flyweight division is is here to stay? Uh, yeah, like uh, like I said, uh, it sucked when they were gonna cut it. You know, some guys lost their jobs and they decided to bring it back. Uh, luckily for me, I can go to 35s. Uh, some guys can't. Uh, so I'm just glad they're keeping it around. Gives more people jobs and opportunity to fight uh, for the UFC. I like talking about uh, recent events with people. I, I don't really like talking to people about their upcoming fights because, you know, we know what the goal is. We know that you want to make weight. We know that you want to beat this uh, individual. So I want to pick your brain on a lot of these fights that have just taken place. So uh, for starters, Anthony Smith uh, against Glover Teixeira. A lot of people were saying they thought that that fight should have been stopped by the corner. If you were in a situation like that, like where Anthony was, would you want your corner to stop the fight? Uh, if you're asking a fighter, no. I don't believe any fighter is going to quit, you know. Um, yeah, I just don't think, not, I think like 90% of fighters are not going to quit. It doesn't matter how beat up they are. Yeah, while I hear that, though, do you think it's on the coach, though, to, to make it so that it doesn't get to that point where, where a coach can, uh, can throw in the towel, so to speak, or, or, or tell the, the ref to stop the fight? if they feel like their fighter doesn't have uh, as much of a chance as they could? Um, 
Yeah, but every every athlete is different, and every coach knows their athlete. You know what I mean? Um, like for me, Anthony Smith still had knockout power. He's knocked out people with one punch. So I mean, technically, he still had a puncher's chance. Uh, you know, at the start of the rounds, because then he got taken down and, and mauled. You know, so um, it's just how good they know their their athlete, man. It depends too. If someone doesn't have knockout power and he's getting beat up like that, then yeah, you got to call it. But if the guy has one punch knockout. Uh, you know, why if he's not quitting, why not? Why make that decision for him? So, would you ever want your coach to make that decision for you, or, or have you? Do you have instructions for Coach Oyama if, if it ever gets into a, a sticky situation? Uh, I trust Coach. If Coach stops the fight, if like I said, if Coach stops the fight uh, because I'm getting beat up, then I trust him. I'm not gonna argue with him. He has the best interest in myself, and uh, he knows me well enough to know, like, hey, man, like, live to fight another day. So if he stopped it, I would. I mean, at first, I think I would be upset, but I think everybody would be upset. But other than that, then um, I mean, it, you just gotta go with it, you know. I feel bad for Mark Montoya in this situation because everybody's saying, "Oh, I should have stopped the fight," but his coach gave, or his fighter gave him direct instructions saying, "Never stop the fight under any circumstance, or I'm not gonna work with you again." You can't blame Mark Montoya for not fighting, stopping the fight under those circumstances. He was probably in the toughest position of everybody because he probably wants to stop the fight. The people in the corner are probably looking at him to stop the fight, but he knows in his head that's not what his fighter would want. Yeah, it just he's put in a hard spot, and it sucks, you know. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know Montoya personally, but Coach Montoya personally, but I, I mean, I can only imagine how hard it is to make a decision like that. How has camp changed for you under these circumstances? Obviously, with uh, the different restrictions in place in the state of California, they're uh, particularly strict. Um, has anything changed about your preparation for this coming fight? Um, I mean, I'm still training, man. Uh, running, training, getting my work in with the people I need. Uh, got guys in, you know. So my training has really changed too much. Um, obviously, not not all the bodies that I'm used to having are there because some people are worried about what's going on, and which is you know everybody understands so um yeah man it's not not too crazy not, nothing's changed too crazy for me john jones came out yesterday he said that the ufc won't pay him even an extra dollar to fight francis and Ganu at heavyweight uh do you do you think that there's a single fight in the ufc that's as intriguing as jones versus Ngannou? like if you could if you were the, a promotion what do you think is the most valuable fight you could book in the ufc outside of a conor mcgregor fight uh well it was a tony uh, Khabib fight, but um, I would I would say maybe Khabib and uh, Khabib and and Gaethje would be interesting. To probably that would be my second guess, but there's really nothing much more. I mean, DC and Jones at heavyweight would actually be pretty good too. I'd love to see that also. I feel like if they did Jones versus Francis for an interim title, and DC somehow ended up beating Stipe, getting the title back, he would have two choices: either retire as champion or potentially face John Jones for a third time at heavyweight that's that would be a pretty cool scenario for everybody yeah i think uh, i think um dc would have a better chance at heavyweight and he just fights better when he's when he's at heavyweight i i feel like do you, do you, how do you see jones versus francis going if that fight were to happen what would your prediction be man Ugh. It's probably one of the first times I go against Jones, I guess, because uh, Francis got that knockout power. I think Jones would would have to have like a year like camp just to get bigger and stronger to deal with that size, you know. Um, it, for him just to go from two hundred fives to heavyweight right now, I don't think he'd be 
as strong. Because, I mean, obviously he's going to try to take him down. Um, and I don't think he can deal with the size right right away. It, it, it's interesting to me because I feel like I don't know how much Stipe weighed against Francis when he beat Francis, but I can't imagine it would be that much more uh, than what Jones would weigh if he stepped in at heavyweight in like a month. Yeah, but it's also strength too. Um, you know, Stipe lifts and eats whatever he wants. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jones has some type of restriction of what he lifts and what he's eating. So how does that frame change? Like you fought at both bantamweight and, and flyweight. What's the biggest difference for you fighting in those two divisions? Well, it's 10 pounds. Uh, like you can either be 10 pounds of, you can get fat or you can get put on some some type of size, put it on five, six pounds of muscle. You know, where heavyweights, you don't got like a limit. Um, you can put on 20, 30 pounds of muscle and, and he'll still be under the weight limit. So I just feel like the strength, you can always work on your strength. Right, it's not like you're moving up to uh, to bantamweight and fighting guys that are 195 pounds that are going to like outweigh you by <laughs> 50, 60 pounds. Yeah, yes. exactly. So that's what changes things. Um, obviously, there's some unfinished business right now in the in the flyweight division. We had uh, the Formiga and Benavides fight ending the way that it did, but with Formiga missing weight. Um, how do you think things play out in, in the division in terms of the title picture? Do you do you look at that kind of thing? Uh, I mean, from what I heard, there. Uh, uh, they're, I guess they're going to fight again in July. So um, that's cool. doesn't bother me. Um, like I said, hopefully Benavides wins. I don't think he will, but hopefully he does win. So when I do rematch up, I can take that title from him. That that eats away at you. We've talked about this before. That The Benavides loss is one you want to get back very badly. Yeah, I mean, any loss. Uh, you know, I can, I, I can name all my losses off the top of my head. I can name guys I've lost to in high school in wrestling, you know. Um, Stuff like that bugs me. I just don't like to lose, man. And uh, yeah, I feel when I, especially when I feel I'm better than the guy. People say they don't want to make excuses for a loss, but when a fighter loses, something has gone wrong. Whether it's you know something in camp, something during the fight, something doesn't click that night. What what would you say was the biggest factor for the loss to Benavides? Uh, getting headbutted. Uh, I got headbutted, and then like I said, I, I got headbutted, and then he headbutted. He headbutted uh, Davidson Figueroa too, and that's what cut him. So I mean, karma came back to bite him in the ass on that one. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was doing great, and then I got headbutted and kind of went from went down from there. But uh, still, no excuse. You know what I mean? Shouldn't put myself in that position. Headbutting in you in MMA is crazy because like it's so hard to see if you're a referee, even if you're watching at home. Like you can kind of guess that there was a headbutt, but it's really hard to catch it in the moment. Do you think that, that the protocol on that could change somehow? Like a fighter could kind of tap their head and, you know, say to the referee, listen, you got to, like, give me a minute? Uh, I mean, it's just so hard because it's so live, you know. Uh, I don't think – it's just part of the sport, I guess. Yeah, it's weird. With the referees, like, they, they get a lot of flack. Even Jason Herzog got a lot of flack for that, that Anthony Smith fight. But, like, in that moment, you see Anthony's following all the instructions that the referee's giving him. So it's hard to to call off a fight when you know you know that the fighter is still responding to what you're throwing at them. It's it's a tough job. I don't know why anybody would want to get into that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that you just it just gotta go gut feeling. You know what I mean? It's kind of it's just there's always gonna be an early stoppage, a late stoppage, some bad call. You know, it's just the way it is. All right, Alex, I appreciate your time. Uh, best of luck against Juicy Formiga. It's UFC 250. Uh, likely at the UFC Apex, and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, how your game's grown since your last fight. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.